This podcast is developed by Bridge Bio to educate ourselves and the public about living with a rare disease. Since our guests aren't scripted and are free to speak their minds, their views and opinions do not necessarily reflect the views and policy of Bridge Biopharma. Thanks for joining us. And now here's the podcast. Welcome to On Rare, a rare disease podcast produced by Bridge Bio, a biotech company that works on developing treatments for rare diseases. At On Rare, we explore what it's like to live with a rare disease. Not only do we get to learn a little bit about the science, but we also get to hear from people living with these challenging conditions. I'm your host, Mandy Rorig, a member of the patient advocacy team at Bridge Bio, and I'm joined by my friend and colleague, David Rintel, head of patient advocacy. Today, David speaks with Kristen, who lives with a rare condition called achondroplasia. Achondroplasia is a form of dwarfism. Hello, David. It's good to see you. Hi, Mandy. Great to see you as well. Uh, I'm really looking forward to introducing Kristen. She's someone I've known for a number of years. Uh, She is just a lovely person, and I'm so happy to include her on the podcast. But before we speak to Kristen, I'd like to introduce you to a friend and colleague of mine, Anne Lee who is also on the patient advocacy team at BridgeBio in the part of BridgeBio called QED. So welcome, Anne. Hi, David. Thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure. So um, let's just start with understanding more about achondroplasia. Can you just explain to us what it is and how is it that some individuals develop achondroplasia? Yeah, and I'm, I'm happy to share that. Um, I feel like I need to disclaim that I'm not a medical expert, um, but I can share uh, with you the condition of, of how I understand it. Um, achondroplasia is the most common form of dwarfism. It's the most common form of a short-limbed condition. It basically affects how bones grow. And the way that bones grow, it's regulated by what's called fibroblast growth factors. And essentially, the condition regulates this growth by slowing down the bone growth. So, and it's a genetic condition, but it is usually not inherited. That's correct, right? It's usually not inherited. So 80% of children born with achondroplasia um, are born from from parents of average stature. Um, These are called de novo mutations. Essentially, what that means is that a change that occurs for the first time Mm -hmm. seen in the family. So, Anne, you introduced us to Kristen, and... You met her as part of your work in patient advocacy. So tell us what your work entails and how you met Kristen. Sure. Yeah, I feel really privileged to work in patient advocacy. It's a little bit different from other more clinical scientific roles that people might uh, connect working in biotech or pharmaceutical companies to. Um, I have the privilege to connect with patient advocacy organizations, families and patients that live with achondroplasia, both here in the United States and globally. My role is to truly understand and learn from the community about what it's like to live with achondroplasia um, or a skeletal dysplasia on a day-to-day basis. And it's really to bring that understanding of the condition and share that with my colleagues internally at BridgeBio and at QED to make sure that the work we're doing is really reflective of the real-world experience of living with achondroplasia. So in that work, I was introduced to Kristen. Kristen 
Kristen is a patient advocate. She also lives with achondroplasia. Um, and she's also the patient advocacy lead for the Magic Foundation, which is a nonprofit um, and patient advocacy organization that supports uh, families with growth disorders. Uh, so Anne, in your role in patient advocacy, you interact with organizations that represent the community of people living with dwarfism, and you interact with individual people like Kristen. And I wonder uh, if you could just comment on what the best part of that position is and maybe what some of the challenges are. Yeah, I really have the privilege of working with advocates and families living with achondroplasia or other forms of dwarfism, and we get a really unique perspective from them of what some of the challenges are of living with the condition. Oftentimes, those challenges aren't, you know, what we know of outside of the medical complications. Some of those complications include um, foramen magnum stenosis, sleep apnea, um, maybe even obesity. But what I've learned from families that could even be more difficult to live with is some of the social impacts. We hear from many families that there's a lot of bullying that happens in school um, just because of how they look. They look different. Um, and that can be really difficult for children to feel like they're part of a group. And so that's been a really unique um, aspect of this position is you're really understanding the human side of what it's like to live with a rare condition. Being able to bring that and share that with our colleagues that are so ingrained in the data and the science to really help them understand the kind of human aspect of what it's like to live with achondroplasia. And I think that is so valuable. Another aspect of achondroplasia, another form of dwarfism that I think about is they are living in an average height world and everything is designed for people of average height. And I imagine that every day they encounter challenges that are related to the fact that the world has been designed around a different group of people. Yeah, that's, uh, you, you bring up a really good point, David, that, you know, I have many conversations about this with advocates um, and with families who are doing the hard work of providing awareness to the public about inaccessible architecture and how all of the things around us are designed for average stature people. Sometimes the question does come up, what does average stature mean? Um, but I think that's why um, research and treatment can be helpful for people or families with achondroplasia and being able to provide some sort of option to allow families to have a better quality of life. Thank you, Anne. This has really been so helpful and I think it really sets up our conversation with Kristen. So we're really grateful for your work every day on behalf of the achondroplasia community. Oh, well, thank you so much, David. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really pleased to welcome Kristen to On Rare. I've known Kristen for some time, and Kristen is a 37-year-old woman who lives in Florida, who lives with a contraplasia and has been gracious and generous enough to join us on the podcast. Hi, Kristen. Hi, David. Really nice to see you again. You as well. I was just telling Amy, our producer, what a social magnet you are, and when you're at a meeting, you just get to know everyone, and really very, very nice to see you. Thank you as well. Thanks for having me. Kristen, I'd like to start at the beginning. I guess I wonder 
if you have a memory of a moment when you realized that you had a chondroplasia or that there was a difference between you and other kids, how does the story start for you? Yeah. So in kindergarten, preschool, you're similar mm-hmm. in height to the other kids. It was probably first grade. There were two boys that were kind of snickering and they were pointing. And that was like the first time that I heard the word midget. I could just feel the negative connotation. I knew it wasn't a good word. And I also remember sitting there and just thinking to myself, okay, Kristen, you have two choices. You can just take it and act like it doesn't bother you or, you know, brush it off or say something. Hmm. And part of me knew at the time that this wasn't going to be the first instance of Hmm. an event like this happening. So I went up and told the teacher who immediately said that this is completely unacceptable. You know, we don't hurt each other's feelings. And it never happened again, at least in that classroom. But that was definitely the first time where I guess it really Hmm. piqued my attention. And I started, I think, noticing even in public whispers and laughing and staring and pointing and all that. I think that that for me was the big, okay, hold on a second you're different. So the realization about your difference came from these two boys and kids can be both very accepting, but also very critical of each other. And boys can be real jerks. Let me just say, having been one. (laughs) So it's not surprising (laughs) that it's boys. I think girls, you know, girls lose a bit of their kindness, maybe in middle school. I don't know. Amy has two daughters and she's raising her thumb now. And I think that's pretty accurate, actually. It's interesting also that the height differences started to be clear by first grade, but not really kindergarten or preschool. I didn't know that. And I'm sorry that the first realization you had about yourself and your identity came from unkindness and a a word that is insulting, which even in first grade you knew, and you also knew that you probably needed to do something about it. That was very wise for a first grader. So just tell us about language. It's language is really important and very powerful. So that term midget, which I think a lot of people still use and, you know, mostly out of lack of awareness. Yeah, unfortunately, I feel like there's like two divisions of the dwarfism community. Most of us do not identify with the word midget. It's very derogatory. And then there is a small portion where it's kind of like if you can't beat them, join them. So they choose to identify with the word midget, you know, midget wrestling, something along those lines. And I don't outwardly say I'm a dwarf. My name Mm -hmm. is Kristen and I live with dwarfism or I live with achondroplasia because I don't want to be labeled and singled out and identified by a condition. There's just, there's so much more to all of us than something that we live with, but Mm. that's me. And it's different for everyone. Mm. I know that there are people, especially in like the disability community who come out and just say, I am disabled. Or there are people that say, I am a dwarf. So it kind of depends. Dwarfism, dwarf, little person, achondroplasia, um, skeletal dysplasia, all mm-hmm. of those are appropriate yeah. terminology. Yeah. But yes, for the most part, midget is incredibly derogatory. It actually took me a really long time yeah. to be able to say it myself. Mm-hmm. And I think dwarf was also like that. You know, you think of like Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And I think that 
it just, it gets uncomfortable when there's, it's, I don't know, labels are hard. It's just a hard subject. Um, I'm far from an expert in the dwarfism community, but I know that there's a split also between those who are very interested in the entertainment industry, which is not always respectful of people of short stature or with dwarfism, uh, but it provides a lot of opportunity, I think, for those who are interested. And then there are those who really don't think that people with dwarfism ought to be participating in what can be an oppressive portrayal of... Yeah, uh, and this is my opinion, but I think that the entertainment industry is an easy out. There are so many of us living with any form of skeletal dysplasia that are lawyers, doctors, advocates. We've worked hard for where we're at. And I just kind of view the entertainment industry as like an easy, okay, you know, this is what I can do. There's no room for growth in the position. And midget wrestling would be a really good example where most of the time it is for entertainment purposes only. However, when you look at, you know, like they're having the World Dwarf Games and if it is truly a competitive sport and there is room for growth and this individual is recognized for their skill in the activity, that's different. Mm -hmm. But when you are giving people permission to laugh and like mock you for your size, your condition, what you have, that's different. When you put someone with skeletal dysplasia in the public eye for entertainment purposes, because the truth of the matter is, you know, starting way back, we were acts in a circus. And so many of us have worked so hard to be viewed as a normal human being in society who hold regular jobs, have families, um, I've been asked many times, you know, oh, I've, I saw you at the strip club the other night and I'm like, uh, nope, wasn't me. <laughs> wasn't me. I don't do that. I mean, and it's just so people assume they see one person with skeletal dysplasia, they just immediately draw a parallel and it's like, oh, well, you're the same. You were yeah. on TV. You've been on that TV show, that kind of a thing. Oh my God. There's a lot of generalization. Yeah. And we humans are prone to generalizations about uh, groups of people that are different than us. This is not unfamiliar and you could substitute achondroplasia or dwarfism. Thank you. That that was really mm-hmm. so helpful, Kristen. You're a person, yep. you're a woman, you're an advocate, you're who you are and what you do first. And your identity is not organized around being a person with dwarfism or with achondroplasia, although that is also who you are. Is that, am I stating that correctly? For sure. And it's being a woman with dwarfism. I wouldn't be where I am today without all of the ups and downs of living with achondroplasia. So it is definitely a part of who I am, but it's yeah. I'm, I'm much more than just a woman with achondroplasia. There's far more to me as a person. Yes. And I can attest to that. So. <laughs> <laughs> so we left off, you're in first grade, you're called a name for the first time. You look around and you start to notice, okay, the other kid's height is starting to be different than my own. So I wonder if we can go back to that moment and how that story continues. Yeah. So that experience in first grade, I realized that I had to be an advocate for myself. You know, my parents weren't in school with me. 
you know, first grade, you're starting to make a whole new group of friends, but it's, I have me for the rest of my life. And I, and I knew in that moment that I had to stand up for what Mm. I knew was right. And when I was in third grade, we had a, like an extended class. It was two teachers and we had about 50 kids. And one of our books was a short story called Thinking Big about a little girl named Jamie who was living with achondroplasia. And my teachers were like, oh my goodness, Kristen, you like, Mm -hmm. please get up, tell the class what your experience is. How do you compare to Jamie? We want you to share your story. And so you know, I was like, okay, I'm, you know, third grade. I, yeah. Sure. Mm-hmm. And my best friend and I at the time prepared this whole script and it was filmed in the art room. You know, we answered questions. You know, when we sat down crisscross applesauce side by side, we were the same height. But then when we kneeled and stood up on our knees, we were different height. And that was because my thighs were shorter than hers. Um, So it was just a lot of different things. So we did it live for our third grade class. And then they showed the movie to all the other Mm, third grade mm. classrooms. And I went in and answered questions. And as I progressed through elementary school, so fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, I would go back into the third grade classrooms and they would show the movie and then I would speak to the class. And I loved it. And I never had another issue with bullying or anything like that in that elementary school and Mm -hmm. the opportunity to share Mm -hmm. my story. It was also the first time that I ever made mention of the extended limb lengthening procedures. I had no idea really what I was talking about, but you could tell that I was excited and that I had already made the decision to go through with those procedures, Mm -hmm. you know? And so that was kind of the first big step on my advocacy journey was, was that thinking big video. Um, And it just carried on through there. So middle school, it was like every opportunity that I had, you know, in like a health or science class to speak about achondroplasia, limb lengthening, growing up in the face of adversity, I did. That was also when I discovered that the dwarfism Mm -hmm. community is not a big fan of limb lengthening. And I really had to become a strong advocate for myself. So Kristen, your school was really proactive. Very. It was a, they were a great elementary school. They really were. I mean, you already had started out in first grade as being proactive, if you think about it, in your reaction to those boys. But it really put you on a path, you know, providing explanations that had the result of helping people understand and reducing the kind of discrimination, et cetera, because people understood that you're a human being first. Before we go to limb lengthening, and we really like to hear about that, I wonder if you remember talking to your parents about either the incident in first grade or when uh, other kids are starting to be uh, kind of taller than I am. So to be honest, I don't ever remember having a conversation like that with my parents. What I remember as a little girl is being out in public, especially with my mom, Mm. and I love her dearly, and I know that it's probably a generational thing, Um, but we would be out in public and someone would stare and she would just get really offended. And so I would kind of take that as, okay, I'm the cause of this. I'm causing her hurt, but we never really talked about it. And so I... I never really felt comfortable talking to my parents about it. It wasn't really a conversation that we had in terms of like emotions and feelings. And I kind of harbored all of that 
And obviously, as I got older, I realized that that was very difficult. There were certain people who tried to encourage me to speak about how I was feeling. And one of those people was my sixth grade teacher, Ellie, who I am still super close with. Um, I do remember one time something was bothering me and I clearly was sad, I guess. And she asked me to stay in from recess. What did I do wrong? I'd never had detention before. And she came in and she was kind of like, Chrissy, what's going on? You know, and I kind of was like, "Mm, what's happening? I just had never talked about my feelings. And I do remember talking to her, not opening up fully, Mm. but enough where I was kind of like, oh, you know, like these feelings are meant to be shared. Yeah. But yeah, unfortunately, especially through my childhood, Mm. I hid and did not talk about experiences with bullying, my feelings, you know, living in the face of adversity because things become very hard. You know, as a, as a parent, when you described your mom getting really mad at people who are staring, you know, it sounded to me like she was feeling very protective of you. But I could see also as a child, seeing your mom getting so angry at other people when they look at you and sort of seeing, okay, well, I'm the cause of my mother's pain, having an interpretation that's you know, very different than how it sounds to me as an adult and completely understandable that you as a child would kind of take that on. And then your conclusion was, I have to reduce their pain, so I'm not going to tell them about troubles that I'm having about this. And we never know what we would do in a circumstance that we're not in. I think a lot of parents would like to have everything be as usual, normal as possible, which I think generationally, as you point out, often means not ever talking about it. It doesn't go away, of course. No, it does not. (laughs) But it makes people feel like it's not there as much. And that applies to a lot in family life. I'm really glad to hear about your sixth grade teacher. So what kind of things did you talk to her about? I just knew that she was a person that I could go to. And she was also a huge confidant in my decision to follow through with limb lengthening Mm -hmm. because it was in her class. You know, I I left sixth grade early to start the procedures. So that was a big Mm -hmm. turning point Mm -hmm. just in my life in general. I mean, we've stayed friends ever since, you know, 1998. And I went on to babysit for her kids. And now her kids are 21, 22, 23 (laughs) of drinking age. So now when I see them, it's like we eat toast and... (laughs) have a glass of wine together it's 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 such a special friendship almost more like a sisterhood um that i value so so much and you know i don't have a lot of regrets in life but i do wish that the younger version of myself had chosen to open up more earlier that would have made my adolescence a lot easier but i do encourage parents nowadays, I work in advocacy and I do a lot with kids who Mm -hmm. have achondroplasia or skeletal dysplasia Mm -hmm. and I'm friends with families. It always amazes me when kids are so willing to open up and talk about how they're feeling. And I always tell parents, I'm like, this is a gift. And even if it's not the parents that the child is willing to open up and talk to, Mm. it's it's Mm -hmm. huge. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I feel like the root of all anger, conflict, the negative feelings that we have is not being heard. So when these kids are just simply heard and and their feelings are validated, it's amazing. You know, the minute someone just says, I hear you, those are very powerful words. Um, 
there's been a lot of research about kids who grow up in environments that are, let's say, less than optimal and how some of them do very, very well and others don't. And the factor that seems most important is that there was an adult in their life um, who was not their parents. Right. I say that as a parent, but, you know, and, um, and if right. you think about your life and the adults who really made a difference, how powerful that can be. And, you know, Maybe right. that makes sense. You know, as parents, we are kind of limited and. Sure. I mean, and especially parents to multiple kids and working and, and all that. And it's not something mm -hmm. that I understood when I was a kid, mm -hmm. but now that I, I support so many families and I've been able to bear witness to interactions with siblings and living in the face of adversity doesn't just happen for the individual. It affects mm -hmm. the whole family. Yeah. Yeah. And now as an adult, it sounds like you're the Kelly for a lot of kids. That's a really good way to put it. <laughs> I I think you might be right. Yeah. Yeah. And and that is so important and really a gift toward those kids and those families, really. Um, around that time that you started your conversations with Kelly, you also started uh, the process of limb lengthening. So I wonder if you could just give us a sense of that. When my mom discovered that I was going to be born with achondroplasia, she immediately started learning as much as she possibly could about dwarfism, you know, anything. And obviously mm -hmm. back then, uh, the World Wide Web did not exist. So it was a matter of like magazine articles. And she had mm -hmm. these two folders. One was strictly information on dwarfism, achondroplasia. And then there was a second folder and that was information on limb lengthening. And she was always very open with me about mm -hmm. options. I went to Dr. Stephen Kopitz in Baltimore, Maryland, who was an unbelievable expert in skeletal dysplasia. I mean, I loved that man. That was also really my only exposure to other individuals with dwarfism. But as I began to learn more and more about the limb lengthening I was like, there is something about these procedures that is just speaking to me. And I also knew that I was going to have to have surgery anyways, because my lower legs were bowing and Dr. Kopitz had, you know, had mentioned this to us. And when I kind of heard what the procedure entailed to correct mm. the bowing without lengthening, it didn't sit right with me. So there was a special on 2020, mm. where mm. Dr. Dror Paley, who at the time was also in Maryland, you know, was with a girl with a, a limb length discrepancy. And then there was also a young man who had achondroplasia and he was undergoing arm lengthening. And I mean, they showed Dr. Paley in the operating room, all of it. And it was it was graphic. <laughs> and I still was very much like, nope, this is this is definitely, for me, this is what I want to do. You know, the, the benefits of limb lengthening were far beyond height. I had deformities in my elbows and in my hips. You know, proportion was a really big deal. Achondroplasia is a disproportionate form of dwarfism mm -hmm. where we have a normal sized torso and then our arms and legs are abnormally short. So something as simple as reaching across a stove, it was like I couldn't reach across a stove without burning my mm -hmm. arm. I just knew that this decision was for me. And we found Dr. Paley mm -hmm. and he said, you're an excellent candidate. And June 3rd of 1998, I was 12 years old. 
I left sixth grade early and um, underwent my first procedure. You mentioned, Kristen, that uh, limb lengthening is not only about increasing height, but has other benefits. Perhaps you could explain that to us if you don't mind. The bottom line is that living with achondroplasia is a disability. That was kind of something that I that I knew. I mean, I would open my mom's folder and just read, you know, medical articles and journals about achondroplasia. I mm-hmm. knew that undergoing the surgeries was going to correct the bowing in my legs. I knew that it was going to straighten out my joints mm-hmm. so that the risk of early mm-hmm. onset arthritis was going to be lessened. There's also this huge... Mm-hmm issue of society is built for individuals who are, I mean, at least four foot, 10 inches tall. I don't know what the exact Mm -hmm. height is. You know, public bathrooms. I used to have to crawl up on a public toilet and it's like gross. Um, Sinks, being able to wash my own Mm -hmm. hands. I was incredibly independent and there were a lot of things that I couldn't do myself driving a car mm-hmm. grocery store checkout counter you know reaching across and and being able to mm-hmm. physically get into the grocery cart and put mm-hmm. items up on a belt i mean there's i could go on there's so many things and all of this i took into account and you know and dr paley was very clear and said we can change yeah. all of this um the other was yeah. proportion you know my arms and legs were going to be in yeah. proportion yeah. to my torso the benefits basically for me outweighed the risks big time. And um, the process, Kristen, you know, hearing about it sounds like it could be very painful and it takes a very long time. And I wonder if you could share a little bit about what Sure. Like. So the process has changed big time. When mm-hmm. I had the procedure done, we did it in three phases. So the first surgery I had mm-hmm. was done on my tibias or my lower legs, where they actually broke the bone in two places. And then they use an external fixator to mm-hmm. stabilize the bone and where it's broken on the outside. And then you turn struts mm-hmm. on the fixator and you lengthen. So with my lower legs, I was actually lengthening in two places mm. where the bone was broken. They call that a double level lengthening. And I lengthened six yeah. inches on my first lengthening, mm. which now is they would never do because there is a lot of risk of nerve damage. And I have my physical therapists back in mm-hmm. Massachusetts, one. 100% to thank for my success. Um, I never had mm-hmm. any additional nerve decompressions or any big complications during my lengthening. Physical therapy is incredibly important and they were a huge asset. The second phase I had were my arms and I lengthened four inches also with external fixators. That's done very similarly today. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my last lengthening was on my femurs. I got five inches on my femurs. They used an external fixator for that, but I was non-weight bearing. So I was confined to a wheelchair, um, which was pretty challenging. I was also at that point in time, I was in high school. Mm -hmm. So it was emotionally, it was tough. But today things are done much differently. They actually have internal fixators Mm -hmm. called the precise. So there's no pin sites, no pin care, no pin infections. They do both tibia and femur, so top and bottom legs at the same time, but you do less length on each segment and then you do the arms Mm -hmm. and then you have the option to do the legs a total of three times. I mean, they've come a really long way 
Um, and I actually uh-huh. joked with my yeah. boss because I, you know, I see so many of yeah. these kids who yeah. undergo the internal lengthening yeah. and I was like, well, I can't yeah. really support them because yeah. I've never had it. You know what I mean? Like maybe I just yeah. need to go for another inch in my femurs and see what an internal fixator feels like. <laughs> totally joking. <laughs> I would never, but he was like, yeah, absolutely not. These procedures are just developing yeah. every day it's it's come a if long, long i'm all way. out oh, of yeah. love and uh the fixators are a kind of a frame that are external to your limbs right correct i've seen those they're made of titanium but there's a lot of like nuts and bolts and struts and all those weigh so much so my legs when i had my first lengthening probably weighed like 10 to 15 pounds each with all the hardware uh-huh. they were very heavy well, thank you. Um, we really appreciate your explanation of that. And uh, I'm very impressed by how clear you were as a very young person about the route that you wanted to take. And it's a very long and difficult process. Yeah, I mean, it was definitely a commitment, but there was no doubt in my mind that that's what I wanted. And so I was very much a fierce, independent young girl, grown into a fierce, independent woman. And I was dead set on those surgeries. And I'll also take this moment to say that they're not for everyone. And that's okay. This was an incredibly personal decision. My parents gave me the choice. 80% of us born with achondroplasia are born to average height parents. I believe that kids who are born in the face of adversity and live with different conditions mature and grow up so much faster. They have such a deep understanding of life, the world around them, that when you give them a chance to hear and respond, they know and understand. And it's just so important to have these conversations. And it's honestly one of my favorite conversations to have with kids because I think they're not given the opportunity Mm -hmm. to express themselves 100% because, you know, a five-year-old is seen as they're not capable. They're fully capable. They really are. You advocate that the kids should be trusted on that, but you also understand and advocate that it's an individual decision for a child and family that outside influences shouldn't determine people's decisions, but they should make choices for themselves, whether it be about limb lengthening or potential medication, et cetera. So, so, uh, You're a fiercely independent woman, you're an advocate, and you're an author. So can you tell us about your work in advocacy and your book? Yeah, so I'll kind of lay it out how this all came to be. There are some individuals with dwarfism who experience Mm -hmm. zero medical complications, and there are some of us who experience some, and then those of us who experience quite a few. So I completed all of my lengthenings, went off to college, spread my wings, everything was amazing. In the Mm -hmm. spring of 2015, I was living in Charleston, South Carolina at the time, and I suddenly lost feeling and sensation from the waist down, and I didn't know what was going on. I went to my primary care doctor, and she said, I don't know whether to send you to an orthopedist or a neurosurgeon. Um, She sent me Mm -hmm. to a neurologist, they did an MRI Mm. and I was diagnosed Mm. with spinal stenosis, which I really knew nothing about. I was then told, go to physical therapy, you'll be fine. Gratefully, 
one of my girlfriends was a physical therapist. And so I was going mm. to see her. Uh, I worked in the yoga industry at the time. And so I was paying, you know, for my own health insurance. So I would pay out of pocket every time I would go to physical therapy. And mm-hmm. she was just like, Kristen, this is ridiculous. You're like, I was getting worse. It was at that mm. point that immediately yeah. made a double appointment with Dr. Paley and Dr. Feldman because I wasn't sure. Mm. I just wasn't sure what was going on. It was very unclear. And bottom line, I, I get down to Florida and Dr. Paley steps aside and says, this is not my area. And Dr. Feldman comes in and says, you're, you're in trouble. Mm-hmm. So basically my spinal stenosis had progressed to the point where I was essentially becoming paralyzed. In 2016, I had a spinal mm-hmm. fusion. That one spine surgery in 2016 has now turned yeah. into a total of, I think we're on to 16 surgeries in eight years. Okay. I ended up moving to Florida because my health insurance in South Carolina wasn't going to cover me with Dr. Feldman. And he was the only doctor who had, you know, promised me a glimmer of hope um, in being treated and getting my ability to walk back. It was, it was really hard. Um, And this goes back to where I, as a child, wasn't super open with my feelings and it became very difficult, you know, so I uprooted from Charleston where my tribe was and moved to Florida. I ended up going Mm -hmm. on disability and I wasn't working. I actually would try fold Mm -hmm. letters Mm -hmm. and stuff them in envelopes, stamp them and address them for a little bit of extra money. I was on food stamps. Um, My whole life had taken a complete turn. I was a a hot mess. But it was at that point in time that I realized that if I'm not in this fight, it's not going to work. And maybe four Mm -hmm. surgeries in, something clicked throughout all of my spine surgeries and some additional surgeries I had on my legs. I started to pull together this book. I had written and rewritten and mm-hmm. worked and reworked this memoir of yeah. mine, starting yeah. from when I was a child, going through the limb lengthening procedures for years. You know, I had told my parents that I had kind of been working on this. And so I utilized my time and I just put all of my energy into this memoir because sharing stories was so healing. And I just thought, okay, if I put my story out into the world and one person reads it and they are able to make a connection, that was, that was enough for me. Um, I self-published. I had no idea what I was doing. I was not an English major. So, Mm. you know, it's a first book. Um, The Mm -hmm. response that I had was amazing People all over the world were reading it and just saying, you know, thank you. Thank you for putting your story out there, you know, and it was shining a light on the limb lengthening procedures and just living with achondroplasia. And then at one point, Dr. Feldman basically said, "Uh, you need a job and I need help. And so now I am a patient advocate for Dr. Feldman and his partners at the Paley Institute here in Florida. You know, it's not just Mm -hmm. advocating for families who 
have a child with achondroplasia. Again, it's families who have all different conditions. I think patients Mm -hmm. and especially something with a condition where you're consistently undergoing procedures or experiencing Mm -hmm. chronic pain, you can feel very alone. Um, And I always say that scars are stories meant to be shared. And I think that there's there's a lot of power that comes from storytelling and from community and advocacy work. And it's something that I'm incredibly passionate about. Gratefully, now I get to say that it's my job. Yes. Kristen, this is the time to give us a plug for your book. So please give us the title. And I know that it's available on Amazon um, for Kindle and printed, but it is. So the title is Little Legs, Big Heart, and that has been my mantra for quite Mm -hmm. a long time. It's available on Amazon. It is a memoir. And please, if you read, let me know what you think. Um, It's something I'm very proud Um, of. Just two more questions. One is the spinal stenosis that you've experienced that's required all of these surgeries. Is it your sense that that is from just a a result of having a chondroplasia? Is it unrelated? Yes. So I didn't realize it. And I don't know that my parents realized it either. When I Mm -hmm. was younger, I didn't have a whole lot of medical issues. But the truth is, is that some infants have Mm -hmm. spinal stenosis when they're babies, and it can affect how they breathe. It's in the cervical part of your vertebrae, Mm -hmm. and it requires immediate medical attention from a neurosurgeon. And then young kids with achondroplasia can also get Mm -hmm. spinal stenosis, and then adults get it. I just never knew about it. It wasn't something that was widely talked about, but it doesn't have anything to do with the lengthening. Individuals who have not lengthened, Mm -hmm. they also experience spinal stenosis. Yeah. I think that's something that isn't really well understood is that there are a lot of skeletal problems that happen throughout the lifespan of a person with achondroplasia, some of which happen early, as you mentioned, and some much later in life. And one other question, which is, I think we'd be interested in hearing um, how tall you are now. Um, that's actually a really good question. (laughs) So after I had my lengthening done, Mm -hmm. I was five foot, um, Uh because of the, some of the surgeries that I've had to correct instability in my joints, I have shrunk an inch or two. So I'm right around four but to me, the numbers don't matter. I drive Mm -hmm. a car without pedal extensions. I live Mm -hmm. on my own. I do my own grocery shopping. I'm 100% independent. Independent, It's an incredible feeling. It really is. And I'm so grateful. You know, I wouldn't be obviously sitting here talking to you, David, whom I've met in Spain twice. You know, having achondroplasia has taken me all over the world and I wouldn't regret it for a minute. Kristen, thank you so much. I personally have learned so much and I am so impressed with your strong sense of identity and You've really uh, been the person who has determined your path and laid out your future. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much. It was fun. (laughs) Kristen is an amazing individual. She is an incredible advocate. She is an accomplished author. She is a mentor. And I think she's gained such tremendous strength from the moment she was confronted by a bully in first grade. She stood up for herself and that confidence that she gained continued through the rest of her childhood and certainly into her her adulthood. 
Thanks, Mandy. Kristen is really such a dynamic person who, as you say, has not only advocated for herself, but also advocated for other members of the achondroplasia community. And I guess I was struck, as you were, by the beginning of her story, confronting the bully in first grade, and then also the role that teachers played in her life, that her third grade teacher invited her to get up in front of the class and talk about living with achondroplasia, and the sixth grade teacher, who to this day remains a mentor and support and has continued to be a force in her life. It's a reminder about what an impact teachers can make for all children. And uh, for full disclosure, you know, I spent five years as a public school teacher. So that warms my heart to know that teachers can have such an impact. I would also add, David, that we all have an opportunity to positively influence and have a voice for one another or encourage one another. Um, Kristen was especially strong in her perspectives about limb lengthening, but for Kristen, it wasn't just about height. For her, it was improving Mm -hmm. and changing her ability to function well in the world. She um, very clearly described going to the grocery store. She described how it was difficult to drive. While we would like to hope that we're making progress as a society to have a more accommodating world for people of all abilities, that it we're not there yet. And there are clearly many more opportunities to make this a more welcoming space for everyone. I completely agree with you. All of us can make a difference in the lives of a young person or of each other by providing support, empathy, and encouragement to anyone who's living with a life circumstance or condition that causes them to struggle. So thank you for bringing that up. I'm so happy that we get to work together through this podcast to continue to elevate people with all conditions and the voices and experiences that they have. Thank you, Mandy. Thank you, David. And thank you, Kristen, for sharing your story. A special thanks to our exceptional producer, Amy Brooks. And to learn more about achondroplasia, visit the websites Little People of America, Growing Stronger, and The Magic Foundation. If you like this podcast, please subscribe. Thanks for being with us today. I hope you'll join us for our next conversation on Rare.